Jeannie Patel-Thompson, international best-selling author, health product formulator, horse listener, earth singer, mother, medicine woman, elephant acolyte, and regenerative farmer. This is the Jeannie Podcast. Hi, this is Jeannie Patel-Thompson. I'm back with Orianne Lee Johnston, and we are continuing the awesome conversation we had last October where we discussed Oriane's book and we're going to discuss a little bit more about her writing, but towards the end, but she wanted to continue the conversation because she had some questions that she wanted to ask me. So Oriane, let's have, let's have a chat. Well, the beautiful thing about the timing is I'm in Zimbabwe right now and it's seven o'clock in the morning and you're nine o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night. And I love that because you were born on the African continent. And as uh, I listen to our conversation and have been, you know, thinking about you and what you're up to, I kind of framed, well, we'll see where the conversation goes, but I framed the arc of this as origins, home and belonging and legacy. Because whenever we talk or I read, those seem to be, the overarching themes that are the bigger story of what you're doing here. Love it. Beautiful. So um, let's begin by, I'm most interested in, you spent the first four years of your life in Kenya and say a bit about uh, where your two parents were from and how you wound up being born in Kenya. Okay, so the way it worked is my father was born in Kenya because his parents at the age of 16 came over from India because Nairobi was offering a lot of work incentives to Indians at the time. So they had more opportunities, uh, many of them had more opportunities in Kenya than they did back in India. So my grandparents came over when they were 16 And they set up their family there. And so my dad was born there. But from the age of 14, he was sent to boarding schools in England, because if you wanted to have a profession at that time, the schooling in Nairobi wasn't good enough. So he was sent to London, England, where he went to boarding school and then also university to become an optometrist, an eye doctor. And during university is where he met my mom who was born in London, but her heritage is, um, she's uh, three quarters, no, she's half, let me get this straight. No, she is, yeah, she's half English. Oh, the little, the little, what's that creature called? Diker. So cute. I asked, (laughs) before we were talking, I said, I hope they show up on the screen. That's awesome. Um. So my mom is also uh, Russian Jewish. So they met at a party in London. <laughs> and then my mom came to Kenya and they got married. And uh, that's that's how it all started. Now, I'm, and you lived in Kenya till you were four. And I'm, I'm so curious, what did your four-year-old bones absorb from being there and were you in the city were you in Nairobi or where did you go out into the rural areas sometimes yes we went out a lot 
And I have so many memories of the safaris and the trips to Mombasa, which is a beach area. Um, I think what happened was I have more memories of, of Kenya than I do of the next, I don't even know how many years. And after Kenya, we went to uh, Massachusetts and I have almost no memories of the two years that I had there because I think I was so shocked and I didn't want to leave. I was not involved in the decision-making to leave Kenya. So I really felt that that was my home and, you know, I would never have chosen to leave there. So I have these super vivid memories of Kenya and all the animals and on safari and the red earth and, you know, very visceral memories and then blank. It's just, I'm like, I'm not here anymore. <laughs> right. Can you take us back as if you're four years old to a particular place and experience? Well, the, there's a couple of things right in my backyard. We had a gardener and his wife who lived at the back of the property and I would always go out when he was trimming the hedges because he had this special energy about him that he could just gently catch birds with his bare hands and he would hold them so that I could stroke their feathers. And then, and then he would take us into the sugarcane. We had a little sugar area that grew sugarcane. He would cut off chunks of sugarcane for us to chew on. And then the neighbor next door had a cheetah. And so it, it was fully caged, of course, otherwise it would have gotten out. But a big game for us was to like try and creep up to go and, and, and the cheetah knew it. This was the game. So the cheetah would hide until the last minute and then wham, and then, and then right up the thing. And we'd be like, ah. <laughs> and it was this mutually <laughs> enjoyable game between us and the cheetah next door. <laughs> So what you're describing is a very early tuning in to an animal in the way that we all in our field, you know, tune into horses and the landscape now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, my mom, um, she said to me once, because I, from, I don't even know, probably since I could talk, I was asking to ride a horse. So she took me to the local stable and I would just basically sit on a pony while he let, cause I was two and they said, we don't, you don't, you can't ride, but I insisted. So they finally said, okay, we'll put you on this and he'll just lead you around and around this ring for half an hour. And I love that so much. My mom said, you would have to have a raging fever before you would miss that ride. You just, it didn't matter what was right. going on. You were going to go and have your ride. <laughs> so from an early age, I had this intense yearning to be with horses. Mm. And here am I in Zimbabwe at the Healing with Horses Sanctuary, leading special little kids around uh, doing what you did back then. Oh, now, of course, yeah. When you were so young, you wouldn't, or maybe you did, um, have a sense of the uh, effects of colonialism. When, uh, when did you have a sense of what, what that was? I mean, you had a, you know, a blended two parents, and then Kenya had been a British colony. 
And what can you say about that in retrospect or when you became older and had some reflections about that being in Kenya? I don't know that as, you know, a two, three, four-year-old that I really clocked that. I mean, I do remember my dad being quite rude to our houseboy, and I didn't like that at all. Um, And I certainly noticed the patriarchy within my Indian family, and I super did not like that. Um, my uncle uh, nicknamed me foreigner. Um, and because by the age of three, I had rejected that Indian patriarchal chauvinistic culture. <laughs> like, I was like, this is wrong. I had a very clear thing about that. Um, and then I think I just had the perspective more of my mom. I don't think I think this is what it is. I realized that there were people around me like my gardener's family and stuff who were poor. And, and even I do remember as a child, like I would be in my bedroom and we had bars on the window because people would um, attach a fishing line and hook to a stick and they would poke it through the bars in the window and drag it back and forth to see what they could snag. Like just, just the poverty that they, so the, the threat of theft Um, was very real. And the threat of us not being safe. But I didn't realize why the people were so poor. I didn't realize why they were so desperate. Um, But I do remember my mom trying to help whoever she could. So she, um, one of the, one of the people, she bought them a vegetable cart. She saved her housekeeping money and bought them a vegetable cart because then that would change their lives because now they could, instead of just bringing the vegetables, they could carry in bags, they could fill up the cart and take it to market. And then another woman, she bought a sewing machine and taught her how to sew. So she got her a trade and she would do these one at a time with people. Um, to kind of help them. So I just had this awareness that, oh, you know, there were people who were less fortunate, but no, no understanding of colonialism or racism or anything. At that sure, age. not at the time when you were that young. Mm-hmm. And as you're describing your mom's gestures, um, how do you think that formed or affected your, uh, there's a chapter in my book called The Ethics of Generosity, how has that formed in your adult life, your sense of uh, contribution or generosity in a way that has integrity when you notice the, the, the kind of economic class distinctions so young? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that combined with the fact that when we then emigrated from Massachusetts to Canada, my mom became a Christian. And so then I went with her and I became involved with the church as well. And so the whole ethos of the, we went to the Christian Missionary Alliance Church, which the whole thing is about outward into the community, into people who are, so I had like this double loaded thing of of giving and service. And so I actually think I went too much the other way. You know, I'm far more comfortable giving than receiving and, you know, went through definitely a period of burnout from giving, giving, giving all the time. Um, So 
yeah, it's, I think I had it double barrel from both, but all, all three of us kids, we all, um, my other two brothers both started, um, charities and, and not-for-profit foundations. Like we're all very giving and service oriented. Right. And I think that that did come from my mom. Uh Uh-huh. I was interested in what are the origins and the roots of how you've chosen to live as an adult. And I say chosen because your life is not by any means default. (laughs) You know, uh, purposeful intent. Well, uh, of course, with the in relation with the bigger than all human. So that. I think that'd be really interesting for people who know you now to know those origins. So I really appreciate hearing that myself. Thank you. And in that vein, when I had gone back to say what has stayed in your bones from your time on the earth of Africa and where are the origins of your service and generosity, um, do any more formative experiences, um, in your early life, thread through to the present? Mm. That's a really good question. Well, the horse thing we already talked about for sure. I also actually, oh, this is fit. This is cool. So there's two times in my life where I've been painting and I've dropped out of time and space and the painting has there's been absolutely no conscious thought no thought about technique about color about mixing lines nothing like i've just boom dropped out and the painting emerged and the first time was when i painted zora who was the first horse that i got of my current horror herd and i painted her 5 years before i got her five years before I even heard about her. And when, when my brother's girlfriend said, Jeannie, I found your horse. And I was like, what? And she was in New Jersey and I'm in Vancouver, Canada, <laughs> like 3000 miles away. And I was like, there's plenty of horses around here. She says, no. So she told me, and she said, you've got to talk to her. And the woman sent me a photo and the photo matched the painting down to the markings on her face. It was crazy. And the second time I painted an elephant and, and, and both times they were watercolor, which I don't really, I, I do paint, but rarely I usually paint in oils. So, and this elephant emerged and afterwards I realized, oh, this is the elephant when we were on safari and I think I was two and we had stopped, my dad was taking pictures of this herd of elephants and they'd had some babies born. And I guess the elephants decided we'd been there long enough. So the ears started waving. So my dad scooches back to the car, but he can't get the car started. It's like, it's not starting. Meanwhile, the bull elephant is thundering towards us and I'm in the back seat and I'm looking out the window at this very aggressive elephant just bearing down on us and at the last second I dove for the floor my dad got the car started and the, the and as we took off the elephant ended up just 
hitting the side of the car and taking off the racing strip. They used to have, you know, those chrome strips right. on the cars back then. That's uh -huh. what I painted, that elephant. Wow. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see whether I do have elephants again at some point <laughs> and what they look like. Oh, I remember you said that in your conversation you had a few months ago with Jenny Jablonski. You wondered if elephants would show up. Mm -hmm. And so that leads me to a question. In that conversation you had with uh, Ginny, um, you said that your, um, your guidance has never been wrong, even your earliest guidance as a child. Mm -hmm. Can you say can you say something about that? Some specific time. Uh, we're not going to stay in your childhood the whole conversation, mm -hmm. but you know these origins of how your life has unfolded now. What are, what's an example or two of that early guidance that was never wrong, particularly if it would you know kind of flew in the face of what would seem more rational. Mm. That's a really good question. I mean, I think as a child, it was more, you know, my questions were really simple, you know, like, should I go here? Should I sleep over at so-and-so's house? Should I go to this party? Should I, you know, because I was, I was, a, and it's interesting because I did have, my kids were like this as well. Like we just, we really like to be in control of our environment. And then when we get in places where, oh, now we have to do this and we have to do this, but our body and our soul is not in alignment with that. And we just really don't like that. So <laughs> I would not want to put myself in situations um, where that happened. Although I did go every year to this summer camp where it was always really challenging for me. There were always nights that I didn't sleep, but it was always worth it because the skills that I learned at camp and the experiences I had balanced out the difficulties. So that would be a, a case where every year I'd go, should I go to Camp Nakaman? Yes. Okay. And then the first two <laughs> days would be absolutely horrible. You know, so this is the other thing about guidance, right? It's not that, oh, when you follow your guidance, everything is great. It's that this is for your highest good. So sometimes right. the things that are for your highest good are really difficult and challenging. And sometimes they feel super shitty and like a big mistake and, and like, this is way too difficult. What happened here? And then it's not until you walk the path and you come out the other side and you look back and you go, ah, I totally understand why that. And I understand why that. And I wouldn't learn what I did and I wouldn't be who I would without that. And so often that confirmation of guidance can take a while to come through. Right. You know, and your, yeah. In our conversation we had last October, we talked about the kind of the shamanic test when you make a decision or a choice, particularly to follow some guidance that seems pretty far fetched. There's a, a test of your, of one's sincerity really, or dedication right. to that. Can you describe with hindsight now um, as an adult, a kind of uh, pivotal guidance that you, that you stayed true to that was difficult? I'm, I'm thinking of the, the viewers or listeners that 
you know, for that, whom that would be supportive or inspiring right now? Well, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is I was living in Tokyo, um, where I went when I was, I went when I was 21 and I spent two years there and I made super, super good money. And I was being headhunted every three months. And I realized, cause if I don't leave now, cause I'd had a childhood dream of being a singer songwriter. And my guidance was that if I don't leave here now and go and pursue that dream, I'm not going to do it because I'm going to get too used to making this level of money to go back to being like this starving artist who's trying to, you know, make things happen in a very competitive, very long shot type of environment. So right. I... I actually left Tokyo in, I, I made the decision. I packed up and I, I moved in two weeks. I was just like, boom, I'm out of here. And I went uh -huh. to London. And then actually the other thing I did is I had gone back to Edmonton to record a demo because to record in Tokyo or to record in London would have cost me 10 times what it would cost me to record back in Canada. So I had recorded my demo and put together my package and then I left Tokyo and I went to England to be a singer songwriter. Now I spent the next three years pursuing that dream. And at the end of it, now I did get several recording contract offers, but none of them were for what I wanted. I wanted to, to sing my own music that I wrote. And this was like seven years before Sarah McLaughlin opened that genre of the girl with the guitar. Nobody was right. doing that at that time. So everybody was like giving me recording contract offers to like, you know, sing this type of music or sing that type of music and dress and look a certain way. And I was like, no, no, I want to just do my, and they were like, no. So I, I realized a couple of really important things. First of all, was that um, the lifestyle of a singer songwriter was not going to suit me at all. I, you know, because you're, you're playing in clubs and you're flying here and you're, and it's just like, you're going to be living out of a suitcase. You're going to be eating crappy food health wise. I couldn't do it. It, that was not a path that was open to me just from the, the basis of my health. And then the other thing that I realized was, you know, I don't want to be famous. I wanted to sing and play my own music, but nobody <laughs> was giving me that opportunity. And at that time, that was long before. Hi, sweetie. She's right at your, your chair. Um, <laughs> that was long before people were releasing a single on their own. You know, that was like right. a decade before YouTube and all that stuff happened. So that was something that I hadn't even considered. But so I, I ended up saying, okay, I'm done. This is not going to happen. So I don't view that as a failure at all because number one, I, I tried it and I realized that I didn't actually want that and it wasn't going to give me what I thought it would give me. But I also took a super important lesson from that because I had spent three years waiting for someone else to give me the deal that I wanted. If I had spent that three years producing my own album or producing a single, right? So 
my next project was to write um, my first health book. And I didn't even bother looking for a publisher. I went straight to self-publishing because I'm like, I am not doing that again. I am not letting someone else tell me what to do with my art. So I formed my own publishing company and I got my own rack of ISBNs and I published the book myself. And I was like, screw y'all. I don't care. I'm putting what I want to put in this book. It's my voice. And I threw it out there on the internet and it, boom, it just took off by word of mouth. So that was an absolutely crucial lesson to have learned for the next phase that has turned out to be one of my life's work, you know, teaching people how to heal themselves naturally from digestive diseases. So, you know, in that way, you can, that's like, so going back to your previous question about my guidance has never been wrong. Someone would say, well, that didn't work. Your guidance is wrong because you never know. It's not wrong. It's just a stage on the journey. It's a step along the pathway. Right. It prepared you and gave you the determination mm-hmm. for the next step. Absolutely. And that must have, must your self-publishing initiative must have been when self-publishing was not as commonplace as it is it now. So that was hardly, groundbreaking as well. Yeah, hardly any. In fact, I didn't know anybody who'd self-published at that time. Right. So it was very new. And that's important. Let me tell you, I found out later how brilliant that was because a friend of mine co-wrote IBS for Dummies. And she was telling me about the kind of censorship her publisher put her under. You know, that, oh, I don't, we, you, you've got to take out that part where you tell people to look at their poo. She's like, well, how are they supposed to analyze their bowel movements if they don't look at them? (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine what a publisher would have done with my book. I mean, that's, that's so mild. My book is like (laughs) 10 times beyond that. Like I'm, I'm a straight shooter. I will talk about everything, especially when it's, you know, this is where your problem area is. Right. So. I, I realized then, wow, that was hugely beneficial that I published it myself. Great. Well, this much we know about you. You're a straight shooter <laughs> and tell it <laughs> like it is. Oh, great. Thank you for that. Um, shifting gears. Um, I've got two questions. Let me see which first. Let me ask you this. Um, uh, I know you've lived on four continents. And when I first came to Africa, and one of the chapters in my book is called Questions of Identity, I hadn't questioned until I came here who I was as a Canadian mm. because I saw what the, you know, the white Europeans had transplanted themselves to Africa and also to North America. So when I went back to the West Coast of Canada, I i mean, I'd always been aware of the First Nations and the, you know, what had happened. And I hadn't, you know, made peace with my own forebears before that, really. And it was difficult. What now? Um, so I was asking myself, who am I as a Canadian? So what is a can- Canadian identity to you personally? 
Oh, I mean, a... the deeper question is, who are you? But, <laughs> you know, as identified in this world, but I'm particularly interested in how you identify as a Canadian, I... having not been born in Canada, and neither you or I are, our genes do not reside in the landscape in Canada. I don't identify myself as anything. I I think because I, you know, by the age of eight, I'd been kicked out of two countries. So it's like, well, what's the point? You know, and then look what Trudeau just did to us, you know, because I wouldn't get jabbed. Apparently I'm racist, misogynist. I can't travel. I can't eat in a restaurant. Like I might as well have been kicked out of Canada at that point. So for me, I don't see those classifications as meaningful. And the other thing is that I've, I've noticed about myself is wherever I live for any length of time feels like home to me. And then when I leave and I go back, I feel like I'm coming home. Mm -hmm. So I just don't think I've ever, the, the, the place that I had the strongest attachment to was Kenya. And that was so thoroughly broken just shattered. Like my parents didn't tell me, didn't even tell us we were leaving. They just came to us in the middle of the night and said, um, let's go for a drive. Got us out of bed, put us in the car. We got on a plane. We never saw, we, we didn't get a chance to say goodbye. There was no prep for leaving. So I think that was so psychologically shattering for me that I just did not, I was, I, I don't know whether it was a conscious decision, probably not. I think it's just, but something in me went, well, I just don't need that or I don't have it. Or maybe it's from past lives from, cause I've mm -hmm. seen, I've re-experienced a number of my past lives and I've been all different races in all different countries. So I just right. don't have that attachment or identification to any one place. It's more like, well, I'm just, I'm here. I'm an earthling. <laughs> <laughs> right. One uh, a Shikiro here, spirit medium, said to me once, um, "All humans are indigenous to the earth." Yeah. Yeah, and that's how I feel, and wherever I go, I you know, feel right at home. Beautiful. Now, for for our younger viewers and listeners, um, say something briefly about the political. Uh, reasons that your family left Kenya at the time that they did? Well, President Kenyatta came to power and, you know, just the, after colonialism, Africans wanted Africa back for Africans. And by that, they meant didn't matter that I was third generation. It, I was the wrong skin color. They wanted Africa for black Africans. So in their mind, we were all not supposed to be there. And, and they were very happily encouraging us to leave. So the, my entire Indian family left. Everybody that we knew left. We, there's one person who stayed behind out of everyone that we knew. Everyone else left because they made it so, you know, they didn't, you know, kick us out, but they just made it really difficult to stay or right. envision any kind of a future. And when you left, you couldn't take your money with you. So right. 
you know, we had lived, my dad was a doctor. We lived in a house with a swimming pool and, you know, some domestic helpers. And we went from there to a two bedroom housing project in, in like a ghetto in, in Massachusetts, like, because we, my dad, we, my dad paid people to smuggle money out, but a lot of them would then just take off with the money. He'd never see it. So just getting out enough money for him to redo his degree because a British medical degree is not valid in North America. Right. So he was like, I, I can't even imagine the pressure he was under. He had a wife and two young kids. So he's the only one who can make money. And he has to two years to redo this degree. And then we have no money left. So he was just, and the math had changed so much in 10 years. It was terrible for him, but um, he did it. He did it. And, uh, and then we, and then the Vietnam war was happening in the United States. So they were going to draft him. And he's like, I didn't lose. I didn't risk all of this to get my family out to now go be killed in some stupid war and leave everyone. So then we left and went to Canada. And where in Canada did you, did you settle initially? Um, well, we went into Toronto, um, Ontario, because another brother had gone straight there. So we went, we stayed with him. And then my mom and dad got, they left us kids there with my uncle and aunt. And they got in a car and they just started driving across Canada. They just headed west. And they said, we'll just drive till we hit the place that feels like we should be there. And they got to Alberta, which was booming economically at the time. And it was summers. So it was beautiful. And so my dad was like, yeah, I can set up a clinic here. And so they bought a house and came back, packed up a U-Haul. And then we drove, we drove in the U-Haul from Ontario to Alberta. This is so fascinating to hear everything that you've said so far that is the kind of the backstory to this life that you have now that you've been that you've created and that you've responded to the calls and the animals and the the land <clears throat> how much change disruption and adaptation has happened for you right yeah good point right. yeah it's yeah i guess it's 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 more right. so it's not every- so abnormal for me Exactly. And it's, it's not normal for many other people, that far flung degree of change and adaptation. And the, the, okay, well, let's just start again. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, yeah. So shifting gears again, um, I was really interested to hear you say something about your sense of family We've talked quite a bit about your your nuclear family of origin and your grandparents, and and you have a family now. So I was curious beyond your individual. I have my husband, these kids, etc., and those parents that you know sometimes was harsh in your early life. I heard in your interview with Ginny. So you have some Indian culture, some English culture, some African culture. And then Western 
North American, which I don't call culture, I call it society, because there isn't enough of a unified historical context for there to be a culture, really, I think, in North America. Um, so I'd love to hear something about your sense of family. Well, and I just want to go back to the culture thing, because interestingly, here's another addition to it. When we moved to Canada, we were sent to a school on an Indian reserve because this was an experiment. So the Enoch band in Edmonton was a very wealthy band because they had oil on their land. And so they had the money, they had built a school and they had their own hockey rink. And so, so I don't even know the who came up with this idea, but someone came up with the idea of saying, hey, again, going back to trying to integrate, how about we bus in all the kids in the surrounding area and they go to school on the reserve? So for, um, let's see, grades five to nine, um, I went to school uh, at the Enoch Indian Reserve. So I had an immersion into a whole other culture and a culture that was definitely reeling from colonialism. And now I was a bit older to understand the, the devastating effects of the right. genocide and the, the cultural annihilation that had been visited upon and to see, you know, I mean, I was going to school with kids who just about everybody's parent was an alcoholic or a drug addict and their home lives were, right. you know, extremely violent and, kind of insane. And, you know, I would go to their houses and there would be no heat because, and they had a, because the, the band had so much money, they'd have this beautiful three bedroom modern house and the walls were punched in and covered in shit. And there was the heat had was turned off and they were using the stove, the elements on the stove to heat the house because the parents were such severe alcoholics that even with right. the monthly oil revenue, they still were drinking it before. Right. So this was like, and then, you know, you show up and the violence at that school because everybody was getting beaten up at home. So that, that was like a whole other thing that, that in terms of cultural influence that I had right. a very, very involved front row seat to. So I just want to throw again, like, uh, how, how did that happen? I don't know. <laughs> uh -huh. Goodness. So was that would have been in the 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. So fairly recent, just a, a firsthand experience of the consequence of colonialism. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and growing up with these kids. I mean, we were all getting beat up at home too. Like that was normal. <laughs> we would go to each other's places and show each other which tool our parents used to beat us with. You know, mine used a strap, mine used a stick. <laughs> like, I mean, it wasn't that it was so bizarre, but their level of instability and violence was certainly, it was next level. And I certainly saw right. that and had that understanding of like, what do you do when your your whole home life and everybody around you is so dysfunctional and and unstable like how how's there how 
how there's no pulling yourself up by your bootstraps when you're in that kind of situation. So mm-hmm. at a very early age, I had that awareness. So I guess if, if I'd been older in Kenya, I might've realized the same things about the effects of colonialism, but I sure realized it in Canada. <laughs> right. And then how would you account for your resilience? Mm. I always had this um, strength inside of me. And I, my brother used to call me, we had a toy at that time called a Weebles Wobble. Don't know if you, do you, did you have those? They were this weighted toy. So you'd push it down, it would flop back up again. And you push it down, it would flop back up again. And that's what he used to call me. He said, you're like a Weebles Wobble. Weebles Wobble, but they won't fall down. Was the advertising slogan (laughs) for this toy. So it's like, you can smack me down, I'm coming back up. You can smack me down, I'm coming back up. And that was just, I think that was something I came in with. I think Mm -hmm. I'd, and again, this is where we go back to the soul's journey. You know, what have you walked through in your other lifetimes that you now come into this incarnation with certain things in place so that you can then go to the next piece or the next evolution that you want to, you know, enact for yourself. And so fascinating that you've been blessed with a family now with children of your own. So I'm curious, did you have a, a conscious ethos of parenting or did that evolve? How did you, um, you became a parent and did you know right away that you wanted to parent differently and raise your children differently than what had been familiar to you in your family of origin? Well, that's interesting because though my dad was this um you know, authoritarian, disciplinarian, dominant person. But my mom was absolutely supportive of all creative endeavors. She tried never to say no to us. Like anything that we wanted, she would, again, when my dad wasn't around. When my dad was around, there were a lot of rules and a lot of no's, but when, as soon as dad went to work, woo, it was like, oh, we do, we could do like all kinds of things and, and every creative project and every craft, she would always support me and she would always, so I, I grew up with these completely different parenting styles. So obviously I chose to follow my mother because that was, that was the way of life. My dad's was the way of constriction and negativity and yuckiness. So with my own kids, I very much adopted that same ethos of I tried to always say yes, like whatever my children wanted, I tried to figure out a way to facilitate that. Because why not? Why I try and and it's interesting, because that's the same way I am with all of my animals. You know, so the times with my dogs or my horses, or even my cat, where I say no, I don't get any kickback. Nobody argues with me because they know that for me to say no, it's so rare. And they know that I'm always advocating on their behalf. I'm always trying to find the yes for them. I'm always supporting them in their desires. And so I found a very similar, I basically was with my children the way I was with my animals. And then, but having said that, 
if I'd had this herd of 11 before I'd had kids, I would have been such a better mother. <laughs> but then the horses are like, yeah, but we're really thankful that your kids prepped you for us. So, you know, 12 or a dozen. Someone had to get the better me and the horses got that one. <laughs> so. Well, I wouldn't say that's true. Right. And how, and I was interested before we actually started recording your husband and one of your children are in the UK. You're up at the ranch. Another one is in the lower mainland. And then pretty soon, some of them are shifting places. And um, does that come as easily to your husband as it does to you? Because you've shifted so much in your life. Yes. Funnily enough, it it does. Because he was, although he was born in England, also British. And I said at the time I was in England, I was like, I will never marry a British man, <laughs> of course. <Right. laughs> Ta-da. Um, but uh, he left England after, as soon as he graduated university, and he went to Hong Kong for six years. And then he also did work projects in the Philippines and um, China. And so he, like me, got very used to traveling and different cultures um, and he loves traveling. He's like traveling for me is hell. Traveling for him is he sleeps eight hours on the plane and gets up ready to go. It's just, he's so right. lucky. Excuse so me. no, he was, he was very similar to me in that, um, willingness to just be wherever and enjoy it. And, and also we both loved to, so even when our kids were young, you know, when you've got young babies and toddlers, traveling is hell. And my mom was like, why are you traveling when it's so difficult? We're like, because it's better than just staying here all the time. <laughs> it's like, uh -huh. it's going to be just as hard, but at least we're on, we're on a beach in Hawaii. <laughs> oh, well, I have one. What? I've just so enjoyed this conversation and kind of watching the petals open more and more and, and coming to know you better. Um, here's my uh, final prepared question. Um, that the theme that I that came in relation to you was kind of origins, home and belonging, and legacy. So would you say something about the legacy you can imagine creating or is being created that will endure beyond this lifetime of yours by your having been here? Hmm. Well, I think the, the gifts in the healing arena will definitely outlast me. Um, my gut stuff has been <laughs> selling for 22 years and just keeps growing. <laughs> My son, when he was 10, he said, well, he said, look at the way people eat. You're never going to run out of customers. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, unfortunately, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. um, so that has just grown and grown and grown. And, and then also because, you know, being a mother and traveling a lot, um, every ailment that arose, I treated naturally. So then I would develop protocols for all kinds of things from hemorrhoids to warts, to vomiting flu, to whatever. 
And so I've created a home remedy section on my site and there's 350 pages of treatments on there that have been tried and tested, not just by everyone in my family, but by about 150,000 readers. So mm-hmm. it's like, cause you know, you buy health books and they, they, uh, or homeopathic or herbal books. And they're like, well, you can use this and this and this and this. And you're like, just tell me which one, especially if you're a mother and right. you've got a kid, you're like, what's the one that works. So that's what right. I've developed and it's all on there. It's all free. And I think that's something that, I mean, as long as humans are still dealing with ailments, that's right. going to just keep on going. Um, and then I hope that, so the ranch where I'm at right now, this is the first piece of big land. This is 160 acres in a wilderness environment. And I hope to acquire as many properties like this as I can. The goal is to get them paid off and then donate them into a private foundation where the land can be legally locked up for 999 years. Nobody can sell it. Nobody can develop it. But you know, you can run educational programs on it and you can, you can do all kinds of, of things to, to keep that education and to give, you know, say disadvantaged kids experience with wild places. And Mm -hmm. so that's my bigger vision of what I'm trying to do now. Um, And all of those things will be able to be administrated by my children after I leave. So Hopefully. <laughs> okay, you're on your way. And having been at the at your ranch up there, what a beautiful start. I can just picture you uh, looking out on the valley and the mountains beyond and the horses down there. So that's why when I watch your videos, um, it's so meaningful because I've been right there and with mm-hmm. some of that herd as well. And you mentioned, so in, in terms of enduring legacy, um, do your children, well, they're, rel- not, they're relatively young. Um, can you imagine them being involved in either or and both the, the, the land trust conservancy preservation education and or the, the healing aspect? Well, my daughter is... has already been a healer for a number of years and she's apprenticed with, she spent a summer apprenticing with a local healer. Um, So she's very talented and she's a fantastic writer. Um, So she absolutely could, could step right in there when, when she's ready. Um, And she has expressed a desire to have um, an animal sanctuary and rehabilitation center. So we'll see. Um, where she goes with that. And then my eldest son, I've actually um, seen a life with him where he was um, a medicine man. So he's not working that right now, but he definitely, and from the age of two, he could see auras and he would make prophecies and we would be like, shit, we better do that. Cause we learned pretty quick that if he, <laughs> he said something, it was going to happen um, so he's very um, spiritually aware and gifted and very connected to the land, the rhythms of the land, the horses. Um, he's, you know, identified that that's one of the essential things that he needs to stay balanced in his life. So those two definitely. And then my youngest, who's trying to become a professional football player, 
has also always been very concerned about the state of animals and the abuse and the factory farming and stuff like that. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't even realize it till he started sending me TikToks. And I was like, oh, you follow all this stuff? Um, and you know, the horses, the horses have taught, um, all three of them, you know, over the years, some pretty, pretty cool lessons and energy management techniques. And they've been very involved, not daily basis, but they'll come in and the herd will be like, you let's go. (laughs) Right. I have read some of your stories about those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I'm just petting a dog down here. Aww. Aww. Well, thank you so much for uh, turning the tables and allowing me to um, uh, address my curiosity about these questions that we've talked about. And I will look forward to more conversations down awesome. But now tell me about your, is it the second edition? Um, I have it right here. Um, when we had our conversation last October, my book, The Geography of Belonging, A Love Story, had come out in the summer. And I had to chuckle. It was the number one bestseller on Amazon in Zimbabwean travel guides all fall. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. See, that's publishing. Like what what it, kind of genre is that for your book? Okay, whatever. <laughs> um and the the sales were uh, through all the networks like this and the other networks that I have and belong to whether horse related, spiritual guidance related, writing related. But it hasn't been selling in bookstores to, to bookstore browsers. I mean a little bit but not picked up and taken. So I thought the book needs a new cover. So um, here's the new cover. Nope, flip it over. Upside down. And a new subtitle. So the subtitle now is A Love Story of Horses in Africa. That's going to sell more. This is a picture of me riding toward a sacred mountain in Africa. And then here is your elephant as a kid on the back cover. There you go. So you can feel that having been that close to an elephant yourself. Yeah. Mine was so angrier though. Be... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and probably scared. And I was just completely ecstatic when I met this elephant. You can see my uh, hair here. Is it on that side? Other side. The other side. Yeah. Here's my hair. There's your hair. Um, anyway, I expect that it'll be uh, out in later in April and then when I come you know online and then when I come back in late April I'll pick up some copies from the printers for but did you change did you change any of the content inside the book I haven't changed the content okay that would have taken me a much longer time but I've Mm. uh, an addition to the epilogue so what happened Uh from when I finished that epilogue to right now Oh, great. Little addition. Yeah. I love that new cover. I think that'll definitely sell better off a shelf. I think it'll have a broader appeal. Well, that's great because I think we discussed before that you and I share the mission of educating the world, Mm -hmm. the world 
about the value of horses beyond the traditional. And that's absolutely a main theme in the story and probably why you and I first began having conversations. And then the second was to um, show behind the scenes in Africa what the news media does not show that people are happy. And this is what I asked, what could I do as a foreign visitor? And whether white, Shona, Indabele, Tonga, in their own words, each person said in my early years, what you can do is show the world, tell your friends what the news media does not show, mm -hmm. that we are happy, that our culture is rich and alive and vibrant, and that we're proud to be African, we're proud to be Black African. So testament to those two things. Mm -hmm. And the love story is, is an inadvertent testament to Black Lives Matter. So similarly, you know, in your work, there's streams and threads woven through this story as well. And I have the outline for a sequel. Awesome. That's going to be <laughs> okay. so good. Well, so much love to you and your herd and everyone who's listening and watching from these incredibly healing horses here. There's 24 of them. Oh, wow. And uh, I'm sitting here, you might, in uh, beside a thatch roof farmhouse, mm -hmm. which may be familiar to you. Yes. And the stable has a that thatch roof as well, although the horses only go into the stable to have their feedings, and then they go to various fields down the road and through the bush and all over yeah. the place. You know, speaking about the beauty of the African cultures and peoples, and I have an, another podcast coming out in a couple of weeks where I interviewed a woman named Robin Lansong. And her wow. story is absolutely incredible. She was kidnapped at age eight in America by a former Vietnam vet who took her to well, it was Rhodesia at the time because it was in the middle of the big war. Which and was Zimbabwe now. Exactly. Yeah. And But at that time, the whole thing was like the country was blown up with fighting and violence and all the rest of it. And then she gets dropped off at some village and, and she's like hiding in a tree. And then... Um, She's been, she, her ribs are broken and blah, blah, blah. And her first encounter, the women from the village are singing as they work. And right. then they, they note, and she said the singing just pulled at her. Like it was nothing she'd ever experienced before. And um, then she, she kind of started looking and one of the women saw her and the woman basically sang her down out of the tree. Yeah. And, and wow. then, and then she was taken in. Now it was extremely risky for anyone mm -hmm. in Zimbabwe to have a blonde white child in their village. In the village. Yeah. Absolutely. From, from both sides. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and this woman, it was her, she said, this was her first feeling of family and belonging that she'd had in her life. Because, you know, obviously her parents were very not good people. So she'd right. been abused from a, well, from her earliest right. memory. 
I can imagine her experience in the village, having spent time in the village decades later. Well, I will absolutely tune in and perhaps have a chance to meet her virtually or in person. Yeah. Yeah. She has such an incredible story. And I'm like, and again, it's Zimbabwe. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are. The arts. (laughs) Okay. Well, I, I will stop my line of questioning now and just give you a really big appreciation for everything that you've brought to all of us. Oh, thank you, Orianne. Yeah. And I I'm can't wait to read your next book as well because I loved I loved this first one so much. And I loved again just how much honesty you had and 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 the vulnerability of really telling the whole truth and just not holding not holding back or trying to sugarcoat anything. And it just makes it that level of realness, just, you just, it's, it's, it kind of transports you. You're actually there and Mm. it it transmits such a deep understanding of the cultural differences you were dealing with. And the, the, like you said, the after effects of colonialism and it makes it so real because you're so brutally honest about it. So thank you for your gift. Thank you very much. Have a beautiful day. Oh, no, you're going to have an evening and I will now have a beautiful day with these horses here. (laughs) Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.